Thank you all for joining today. We'll get started here in just a few minutes. Hello, I'm going to give folks one more minute to join us and then we'll get started. Hello, uh, my name is Paul Bierman. Uh, I serve as the Director of Education and Events for SNEB. Welcome to today's uh, Journal of Nutrition, Education and Behavior Journal Club webinar, the second in a series of 10 webinars celebrating the best of JNEB, including the best article and best research brief and finalists along with other high impact articles. As the official peer reviewed journal, of the Society for Nutrition, Education, and Behavior, GNEB serves and advances nutrition education and behavior-related research, practice, and policy. Before we begin, I uh, want to just fill you in on a few pieces of information. First of all, closed captions are enabled for this webinar and can be accessed at the bottom of your screen. Uh, if you are here live with us today, you'll see that the handout for today's presentation is in the chat. 
throughout the presentation. Uh, we will take questions uh, at the end of the presentation. Uh, we'll have an opportunity for some of those to be answered. When the webinar ends today, you'll be prompted to complete a short survey. Please take a moment to complete the survey as your feedback is greatly appreciated for future SNEB webinars. The webinar is being recorded and will be available free of charge to SNEB members under the webinars section of the website. Finally, watch for a follow-up email to be sent in the next few days that will include a link to the recording for this session, the slide handouts, and your CEU certificate for your attendance today. With all of that being said, I can now hand things over to our moderator, Dr. Kristen DiFilippo, Teaching Assistant Professor at the University of Illinois. Kristen? Thank you, Paul. Today, our speaker is Dr. Sarah Stutz. She is a registered dietitian nutritionist and certified diabetes educator. She is an assistant professor at Colorado State University in the Department of Food Science and Human Nutrition. Her research focuses on addressing food insecurity as it impacts adults with nutrition-related chronic diseases such as diabetes, with an emphasis on health disparities, social determinants of health, nutrition education, and multi-level approaches to chronic disease management and prevention. I want to thank her for joining us today and sharing her work. And at this point, I can hand it over to Dr. Stutz. Great. Thank you so much. Um, is my audio okay? Okay, great. All good. Thank yes. you, Paul. Appreciate it. All right. And then maybe I'll ask for one more confirmation just to make sure I share my slides and the uh, presentation view looks um, good on your end. So give it just a minute. Think. Okay. Uh, does that look okay? All set. Great. Thank you both very much for um, for inviting me and for the lovely introduction. Um, and so my name is Sarah, and um, my talk today will be um, is entitled "Healthy Eating Determinants and Food Security Resource Opportunities: Urban Dwelling, American Indian, and Alaska Native Older Adults Perspectives." This webinar is gonna be kind of in two parts. So first I'm gonna go through the highlights of the study um, that resulted in this um, JNEB publication. And then I wanna tell a short story about the origin of the project with the hopes that I'll be able to um, inspire perhaps some of you that are um, in academia and new to the grant writing world um, and just uh, share a little success story um, with you. Okay, so the next two slides are required by the webinar series, just to show which are the competencies that um, your CEUs will be um, relevant for on this slide. And then the second slide that's required by the webinar series is just my disclosure, um, and I have no um, conflict of interest in relation to this presentation to disclose. So instead of waiting till the very end, I always like to acknowledge um, my colleagues and mentors and funders um, right from the start of a presentation so that I don't run out of time. Um, of course, there's um, nothing that I do alone. And with the support of my um, colleagues and again, with the funding um, and of course, the participants that engaged in this project, um, this is why we are here today to be able to share um, about our study. Okay, so just a little bit of background. This slide um, 
kind of give some level setting for some terms and some concepts that I'll be referring to throughout the presentation. I just want to make sure that everyone is on the same page as far as what I mean when I talk about these things. Um, so first, food insecurity. I probably don't need to belabor the point for this audience on what food insecurity is, but the USDA, United States Department of Agriculture, defines food insecurity as a lack of consistent access to enough food for an active and healthy life. And now, of course, it's argued that in today's health and equity challenges, we're calling for the U.S. to shift from food insecurity to nutrition insecurity in order to focus on policies that act that help folks access healthful food and not just enough food. For chronic disease management prevention, we know that food and nutrition insecurity are social determinants of health that can impact nutrition-related chronic disease management and prevention. Examples such as eating healthful whole grain foods instead of processed refined foods for people with diabetes and lower sodium, less processed foods for people with hypertension. Among older adults, which is the priority audience for this particular study, um, many older adults face additional challenges related to the social determinants of health, such as issues with mobility, transportation, chronic pain, comorbidities, and physiological concerns like dentition, and then also working um, within a fixed income. When I prioritize urban dwelling, American Indian and Alaska Native communities, you'll see abbreviated as AIAN as the federally recognized term for this audience. The reason that I prioritized working with urban dwelling um, American the Alaska Native is because more than 70% of these folks live in urban areas. And many of the health disparities related to the aforementioned determinants um, impact American Indians, Alaska Natives, in addition to some of the implications of colonization, forced removal from native lands, racism, loss of access to traditional foods because of that forced removal. And so there are kind of a whole a whole nother layer of social determinants that impact American Indian Alaska Native's ability to eat healthfully to prevent chronic disease. Um, I also worked with an urban Indian health organization, which you'll see abbreviated as UIHO. These organizations are managed by the US Department of Health and Human Services through Indian Health Services. The Urban Indian Health Program, U. IHP consists of 41 nonprofit 5013C programs nationwide. And these programs are funded through grants and contracts from the IHS under Title V of the Indian Health Care and Improvement Act. So, in summary, on the background for the background of this slide, food insecurity can negatively impact chronic disease management. And older adults often have more nutrition-related chronic diseases and barriers to healthful eating, such as unreliable income or fixed income and unreliable transportation. And urban dwelling American Indians um, serving clinics are a trusted source of care for American Indian elders um, and can have potential to help mitigate the implications of food insecurity. So the objective of this study that was featured in um, the paper um, the paper in JNEB was to explore the perspectives and experiences of American Indian elders regarding locally available food insecurity resources and opportunities for the urban Indian health organization to expand food insecurity support in their city. 
And so to answer this question and meet this objective, our study design is here. Um, so first needed to establish approval and support from the Urban Indian Health Board and the National IHS I Institutional Review Board prior to any research commencing. Once we received these approvals, then we conducted a qualitative study using constructivist epistemology, which is the framework that privileges the voice of the participants, asking the participants questions to which there's no truth or single answer, but it also allows us to acknowledge and recognize indigenous knowledge systems and ways of knowing through storytelling, which is a key way that knowledge is shared and transferred in American Indian and Alaska Native communities. We used individual telephone in, uh, interviews, and this was because the data collection started right in the middle of the pandemic. Um, we had originally planned to do in-person focus groups, but that was not safe for the participants or the moderators, um, so we used telephone-based interviews instead. And we used a semi-structured moderator guide um, to collect the data. And I'm gonna share a little bit on the next slide about some of the scenario-based questions that we used um, for these interviews. And so that the reason that we use scenario-based moderator guide questions was several fold. First, we wanted to include individuals who may or may not have experienced food insecurity themselves and allow them to participate in this study. So being food insecure or experiencing food insecurity was not inclusion criteria for this interview study. We also wanted to help destigmatize food insecurity and allow participants to share their own experiences if they wanted to, but they wouldn't necessarily have to um, when you see the types of questions that were asked. Um, they could talk about kind of an other um, person that they'd be giving advice to. And we also just wanted to make sure that we used a trauma-informed um, and strength-based moderator guide as a way not to re-trigger any trauma um, and support the well-being of the participants involved in the study. So next you'll see a, one of the moderator guide questions. And so kind of a little scenario that the participants were asked to respond to. This one says an American Indian elder has recently moved to Denver and she's struggling to afford enough groceries for her and her granddaughter. What suggestions do you have to help her with her household food needs? So in this case, the participants could talk about this other person um, regarding resources available in Denver and wouldn't necessarily have to disclose if they've ever actually utilized any of those resources themselves. Another question um, along those lines was an American Indian elder was recently told by a doctor that he has high blood pressure. His wife has diabetes, money has been tight, and he's worried about being able to afford enough healthy foods like fresh fruits and vegetables that the nutritionist recommended. What suggestions do you have to help this couple meet their household food needs? So again, a chance for participants to respond to the question and not necessarily share their own personal experience. Um, although I will say many of them did um, open up and share what they had done in a, in a similar situation. All right, and then back to the study guide, the last, excuse me, the study design, the very last bullet um, is the one to talk about next. And in addition to the one-on-one -on -one interviews, all the participants completed a 10 item questionnaire um, just for basic demographics. So things like age and living arrangement. Um, but we also did ask them on this um, one-time questionnaire, um, 
about their food insecurity status. So again, remember food insecurity was not inclusion criteria for participating in the interview, but we did ask about it. And in order to do this, we just used the hunger vital signs, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with. This is the, um, the, the kind of the standard of care for screening food insecurity. It's a two item screener, um, a positive response of true, sometimes true or often true for either question would then warrant um, the person kind of screening positive or experiencing food insecurity. So we use these two questions um, within the past 12 months and you know of note, we collected this data in October of 2020. So you can just picture where that was in terms of the pandemic. We were um, just under a year in, this was prior to vaccines being available um, for the, for the um, greater public. Okay, so just a little bit more about the study design before I get into some findings. We did trans, we recorded the, um, the phone calls um, using just a little app on the, the phone and then used Atlas TI as um, a computer-assisted um, qualitative data analysis software to code the data and analyze the data. And then we also did do member checking with the participants that were in the study just to um, triangulate and ensure that we were um, representing what the participants said um, authentically. So now I'm gonna go into just a little bit on the findings from the survey itself. Remember, it was just a 10 question self-reported demographic survey. We did collect data from 24 participants, all of whom completed both the survey and an interview. Um, most were female, the mean age was about 69 years old. Most did not have children in the home. Um, and then based on the um, two item hunger vital sign food insecurity screener, you can see a very profound finding here um, that 75% of the participants screen positive for food insecurity. And remember this was not part of the inclusion criteria. Now, again, granted during this time was the first year of COVID. Um, and we do know um, based on findings from the Food Research and Action Center of a report published in December of 2021, that almost half of Native Americans and Alaska Natives reported experiencing food insecurity during the COVID epi epidemic, um, pandemic. Um, but of course, 75% is still considerably higher than even what FRAC found in their, um, in their um, much larger sample. Okay, so next I'm going to go into, maybe, there we go, sorry. Um, so there's four key themes from these 24 interviews and I'm gonna go through each one of them um, and give you a quotation that um, exemplifies each theme. So the first theme was that programs to improve food access do exist in the urban area, but they may not be enough to decrease food insecurity, nor do they necessarily improve access to healthy food. And so remember um, that food insecurity and hunger are not synonymous. And so though we found there are a lot of resources to help reduce or prevent hunger, food insecurity or kind of the psychological impact or concern of not knowing exactly where the next meal is coming from, not having access to healthy food or having to make trade-offs between things like food or medication co-payments um, still persisted. 
And so this quotation really exemplified um, this theme. One participant shared with me, you do what you can. I've never gone hungry. I'll just eat the canned stuff. I can make meals out of canned soup. Even in hard times, I can get that. I mean, yes, there's so much salt in there and preservatives, but that's better than going hungry, right? No one wants that. The second theme is that older American Indian Alaska Native adults face multiple challenges related to the social determinants of health, which impacts their ability to eat a healthful diet. So things like transportation, fixed income, racism, discrimination, um, forced removal from native lands, which caused loss of traditional foods and access to these traditional foods. Um, in this slide, the participant specifically talks about uh, challenge related to chronic pain and ability to exercise safely. And she says, but you know, to eat a healthy diet is good, but it's so expensive and that's hard. So sometimes you have to improvise and some stuff just to get by, like for high blood pressure. I was told if I lose weight and I do a lot of walking, which lately I haven't been able to walk because my knee is giving me problems. And now I think I'm gonna have to have a knee replacement. Plus it's not safe for me to walk outside alone. It's just not in this neighborhood. I'm an old lady. And of note, uh, the participant is the one who called themselves an old lady. That's no, those are not my words. Um, the third theme is that the social and cultural value placed on sharing and supporting one another by American Indians and Alaska Natives can improve healthful food access for older adults. So this finding was something exceedingly salient and really surprised me. However, I must admit, um, when I shared this finding with my collaborators and mentors and authors on this paper um, and this project who are Native themselves, they were not surprised by this theme. So. In response to um, one of the scenario-based questions, here's the quote that I um, picked out here. So remember, she was given a scenario to help to, to give advice to a Native family who moved to Denver who was struggling to eat healthfully. And she said, I would give what I have. That's what we do. We always share food. My mother did this growing up, and I would always share what I have even now, even when I have very little. So just as a short segue here, I want to point out that in qualitative methods, there's are very often a benefit of the interviewer being part of the community. Um, there's, you know, there's often trust there. There's often the ability to um, talk freely with people from a space of uh, mutual trust and respect. However, sometimes there is a benefit for an outsider to be involved. Um, so in this case, I think because I'm not part of the community and I was able to um, still find a lot of surprise in this very salient theme, I think some of my Native colleagues might not have picked out the same theme because they would think, well, of course, that's what we do. Um, and that's a core value and, and a shared value among a lot of people in these communities. And so I think that the, the salience of this theme, um, for those of us who are not Native, who have the privilege of working with these communities and reading about work um, conducted with these communities, um, it really highlights kind of that, that benefit. Um, and also thinking um, certainly about um, future programs and future interventions that can really help from a strength-based approach, this um, value of sharing and, and considering community um, certainly is, is a strength of the, the community that, um, that I had a chance to interview and speak with.
And then the fourth theme here um, it was that there's many opportunities for American Indian Alaska Native serving organizations to improve healthy food resources. And so we asked the question, the moderator guide question was, you know, what can the clinic do to support older adults with food insecurity? And we got many responses, things like, um, you know, access, information, transportation. The idea of just knowing what's out there, what resources exist, came up a fair amount. Um, and this participant shared specifically what he would have liked. And he said, ideally, if I could get vouchers or gift cards where you can just shop as you need it, that's that's even better. So you have a choice and it gives me the dignity to choose what is healthy for me and respect my preferences, especially for elders. And he was he had previously just talked about elders food boxes that had been available from another um, resource in town, but there wasn't a lot of choice involved in that box. And so he was sharing that he would have preferred something that would give him the, the, the choice to um, pick which foods he'd want to eat. And so just a few slides here on kind of the discussion, and this is um, outlined quite a bit more in, in the paper itself. But many of you familiar are familiar, of course, with social determinants of health and as they impact health disparities and diabetes health disparities in the case of uh, most of the work that I do. Um, but it's important to remember that in the in the context of working with um, certain audiences, in my case, um, American Indian Alaska Natives, is that there are additional determinants of health. Um, and that includes the, the implications of colonization, forced removal from native lands, boarding school, structural racism, all that impacts the ability for many American Indian Alaska Natives to eat healthily. And so this is uh, a framework that I um, rely on quite often, the NIMHD Health Disparities Research Framework. Many of you are probably familiar with this framework, showing the different levels of influence and domains of influence across the lifespan. Um, but this adapted framework, which you can also find on the same NIMHD um, website, is really specific to American Indian Alaska Natives. And it was um, developed by uh, my mentor, Dr. Sparrow Manson. Um, and so just really nicely, out some of the very specific um, determinants of health that impact um, this community. Um, I know this slide is a little bit blurry. It's hard to read the, the language there, but uh, or the, the 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 words in the in the picture, but um, it was very clear from these findings, which certainly matches and is supported by literature and the socio-ecological framework, that multiple level of a multiple level approaches are needed to address food insecurity. So in addition to individual community, um, structural access, whether it's transportation, um, whether it's the cost of food, whether it's the availability of food at the markets that folks have ability to get to, um, there's all different levels of why someone might experience food insecurity. Um, and that came up a fair amount in the, the, the findings as well. And then when we, it's important to think about, you know, the, the resources, interventions and, and solutions that that always build on the cultural strengths and assets of any given community. So thinking about things like the strong ties of the community, the holistic health of traditional foods and access to these traditional foods for American and the Alaska Native communities. And these policies and resources that help improve food and nutrition security that first needs to take a step back and really even define what nutrition might mean to the community. Um, it might not mean the same thing as it might mean to me as a dietitian and diabetes educator. So I might think of things 
um, as nutritious if they're low in sodium or if they're high in fiber, but someone in the community might think about nutrition by way of how is it connected to my culture? How is it connected to the land? How does it nurture the land um, that I'm living on and that I have um, responsibility to steward? So um, I did add one bullet here. I don't think it's in the handout on assessing food insecurity. And um, I just want to point out that there's some great work being done to consider how food insecurity is assessed in American and Alaska Native communities. I know I showed the two item hunger vital signs screener, which is most widely used right now, but we do wanna make sure that the questions in the screener and in longer food insecurity uh, measures um, are not stigmatizing, that they're trauma informed, that they're relevant for the community. Um, this is not my area of expertise to develop such measures, but luckily there are others working on strengths and asset-based approaches to assessing food and nutrition insecurity, um, both in Native communities and in other marginalized communities. Next, I want to show a slide. Um, as with all community-based research, um, especially in the work that I do as I was taught by my mentors, it is really important to share back with the community the findings of the research. Um, so the participants in this study were especially interested and they asked me to share what I learned. And so I had the privilege of working with a, a, a graphic designer who's a native herself, and she helped me develop these beautiful, this beautiful participant-facing um, um, handout. It's about five pages long. I know you can't read the font, but I think just seeing the beautiful graphics and seeing how nicely it's laid out. Um, I just wanted you to see, you know, what we shared back with the participants, with the Urban Indian Health Organization board, with the leadership, with those who approved the study, um, was really important and a nice way to share back with the communities that they they understood what we learned and, and how we, um, and this was part of the member checking as well. We had a draft of this that went out to the 24 participants we interviewed and they had the uh, chance to respond um, to the, the, um, the preliminary findings before we, finalized our findings and developed this um, beautiful document. And so conclusions and next step for this particular study. So these findings, I think, provide a foundation for urban Indian health organizations to think about developing and implementing food insecurity resources for their elders. Resources should always build on cultural strengths and be specific to the challenges faced by elders, which are different than challenges faced by um, younger adults and perhaps families with young children in the home. And of course, not everyone on this listening to this webinar actually works with or serves American Indian Alaska Native communities, but I think similar resources could be developed for other urban organizations that serve elders um, in your community. And so I'm gonna switch gears here next. Um, and I'm gonna talk a little bit about the funding for this project. Um, and again, I think the, the reason I wanna share this part is it's um, fairly, um, quite, quite a success story, I would say. And for those of you that are you know, off, on soft funding, those of you that are students that are applying for small internal grants or, or have the um, charge to do so as part of your grad program, I want to give um, a little inspiration here. And so this entire project that I just shared with you, the interviews of the 24 um, elders, was funded by um, 
a CCTSI or Colorado Clinical Translational Science Institute grant um, that I wrote. It was my very first grant that I ever wrote several years ago. Um, and it was only for $8,000. So you can see this, of course, is the RFA for 2023. I wrote for the RFA for 2020, but the funding dollar value has not changed. So with a little $8,000 grant, um, what I was able to do um, is seek a new partnership. And so this picture here of the building is the beautiful um, institution that I worked at at the time at the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus, Center for American Indian and Alaska Native Health. So although my center already had wonderful relationships with the Urban Indian Health Organization here in Denver, I didn't have any kind of relationship with the clinic. And so I was able to make a new partnership myself um, with this organization and with my colleague and partner and, and co-author on the, the paper he, at that organization. I also learned how to seek approval through the required um, advisory board at the clinic. I had never done that before. And also to seek um, national IHS or Indian Health Service IRB approval, which is required um, when working with Native communities in, in particular spaces. Um, and then I also learned to collect data through COVID, through a pandemic, which I'm sure many of you also have lessons learned of collecting data through the pandemic. Um, and I found that talking on the phone with older adults who were otherwise pretty much homebound only because of the pandemic and, and the safer at home, um, you know, folks hadn't been vaccinated yet. It was still kind of the really scary and, and, and deadly time of the pandemic that folks really wanted to talk to me on the phone, not just me, but anyway. So it was, um, it was really nice to have people just open and willing to carry on conversations. Nobody was really too busy to talk to me. And I think the lesson learned from that is although we could have done Zoom and I could have done video conference and built people's capacity to do that if they weren't comfortable, a phone call worked just fine. Um, and so I think sometimes we, you know, we try to be as techy as we can possibly be, but this was just an old fashioned phone call and it worked absolutely wonderfully um, for this particular data collection. Um, and then some on with this success story. So with this $8,000 grant, um, I was, um, I, my co-authors and I were able to present at 2021 um, SNEB, which was virtual because of COVID. Um, so that was an oral presentation that we were um, accepted to present. And then from the findings, we also had a publication in JNEB in December of 2021. And then that publication was chose, uh, selected by JNAB for a press release and a podcast in February of 2022. Um, I had never done a podcast before, so it was very fun to be interviewed and get to talk about our work on this um, press release and, and podcast. And then, um, because I, uh, you know, because I was invited here today, but this paper was then accepted or um, nominated and, and won the best research award for JNEB in July of 2023. Um, so there's me accepting our uh, award in, in DC just a few months ago. Um, and so really, um, and with that award, um, there was a, a monetary portion of the award, which I was able to donate back to the clinic um, to help offset a lot of the support that they did in collecting this data. Um, and then we also were able to have a public health impact with this small 
grant project because we were able to connect the clinic leadership with state-based food security resources that serve um, older adults in the state of Colorado, not specific to American Indian Alaska Native, but a resource that the, clin ha the clinic hadn't previously been connected with um, that already existed in Colorado and was already available um, to the patients that they serve. And on my last slide here, I'm going to revisit the acknowledgements. Of course, just want to make sure that I thank all of my collaborators, Adria Maddox, who's my partner at the clinic um, and was um, my, my colleague throughout the, the whole course of this project. Dr. Kelly Moore, one of my mentors, Lucy and Kelly Begay, who helped with the write-up and the findings and the analysis. Kelly's also the graphic designer. And then of course the CTSI, which um, funded this um, small but mighty and powerful um, grant. And so that's the end of my slideshow. I think I'll stop sharing. Thank you so much for sharing your work. It's always great to hear about a success story and how even small amounts can be used to great purposes. Um, so if you have any questions, please feel free to put those in the Q&A um, section or in the chat. Uh, so we have a question from Eugenia. She said, I love the sharing food theme. We have collected comparative data through our annual surveys with refugee and immigrant program participants. Do you feel that it can be used as a proxy for social capital or as a factor which can indicate how severe food security is if, for example, they are unable to receive receive food from others or share it with others? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And thank you for sharing with your work with, with immigrant um, communities. I believe that's what you, you said. Um, you know, that, uh, the the mo the biggest thing that comes up for me when you when you mention that question or that statement is I think that is one of the um, one of the questions in the longer USDA food security module so not just not the two item but the, the longer one I think it's six item um, there is a question about um, you know something like do you run out of food at the end of the month or something like this and and I've been told by um, of course I'm not part of the community but I have the privilege of, of serving the community um, in many ways. But um, I've been told that among American Indian Alaska Native communities, that question is not super relevant um, because nobody um, really runs out of food because they would share and they would work with their neighbors and their family member. Um, so that's, I think, a, a perfect example of kind of one of the maybe not so culturally relevant questions and really doesn't get at um, you know, the way we would want to operationalize resources for food insecurity if someone is having to share then they might be depleting someone else's resources, but they might not um, identify as being food insecure. Um, so I think that's one of the the many ways that um, some of the my 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 colleagues and and mentors have thought about how can we revise the food security module to better meet the needs of of this audience. And it might be similar with your uh, ad, um, immigrant or refugee populations as well. Oh, thank you. So Rachel has the question. She says, thank you, Dr. Stutz, for the informative presentation. Uh, my question is associated with the elaboration of collaboration partners you had for your research project of um, American Indian Alaska Native heritage. In addition, were there any social workers or mental health experts within the collaboration team associated with the psychological impact or angles of your research project? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think that um, I'll answer kind of it in two 
two part, but, um, you know, I think as someone who's, um, you know, a, a junior faculty member in the at baseline, and then also, um, you know, not part of the community that I, that I serve, I, I, it's, it's my job to surround myself with people who can mentor me from all kinds of different aspects, whether it be on American Indian Alaska Native culture, whether it be on, you know, academia and grantsmanship and things like this. So I've been very lucky because I have quite a few mentors who are, who are one in the same. So I have native mentors who are in academia. Um, my primary mentor, Dr. Spiro Manson um, and Kelly Moore, who has since retired, but taught me really everything I know are both native scientists um, and investigators. Um, and then a lot of the the women, mostly women that I work with um, are also native women themselves um, and help guide me and help correct me and help um, you know, give me feedback as to how I could do this work in a good way and show up as an authentic ally and not, um, you know, not be exploitative, not be extractive, but really, really listen and learn from community. Um, and so, yeah, so that's a kind of a priority. And that's, that's my job as an, as a non-Native person to, to learn, to read the history, to find who can, who can I learn from and how can I also, you know, give back to them at the same time they're sharing their knowledge and expertise and, and wisdom with me. Um, are there any social workers or mental health experts in the collaborative? Um, not on this project. Um, I, you know, I have mostly nutrition collaborators, um, many of whom are native, many, some of whom are not, um, but I, I don't have, um, that's a great question. Um, and now at the clinic, I will say they have really robust mental health and, um, and and social work teams at that particular clinic that I worked with in, in Denver. So I'm not necessarily, um, I think the people that I talked to in this study have ample access to those folks because they are at a really well run, well funded and well organized clinic. Um, but certainly, um, yeah, that's something to, to think about because a lot of these questions can be, um, you know, triggering when we talk about food insecurity and when we talk about access to food, especially when we're talking to elders who have experienced in their lifetime things like boarding schools, removal from their native lands, you know, loss of access to their traditional foods, loss sounding like it's a passive term, but loss because of the forced removal. So I think um, certainly being mindful of those conversations and, and um, you know, and just, just thanking people, offering reverence and gratitude to these um, elders for sharing their stories. Again, I think I kind of hit the sweet spot because it was right in COVID where, you know, people were kind of stuck at home. And so to talk to me on the phone um, wasn't, we talked about the weather, we talked about sports, we talked about all kinds of things, um, you know, before we got into the conversation um, on the interview, because I think a lot of people were lonely and this wasn't specific to Native folks. I think a lot of older adults were lonely during the co during COVID. And so it was just a nice time to get to talk with people on the phone. Okay, and then another question. Um, again, thank you for the wonderful presentation. Uh, what challenges did you face during the initial partnership building phase? Well, that's a wonderful question. And I, I'm so lucky that my mentors, um, and this happens to me over and over again, reputation preceded me. And so um, Dr. Manson and Dr. Moore had worked with this clinic before in the past. Um, and so really kind of opened the door for me and, and kind of gave me the 
you know, legitimacy and entree that that I, I, I would have needed otherwise. Um, but I will say that this was a clinic that was a federally qualified healthcare center that had to take care of their patients during COVID, right? So like every other clinic, every other healthcare organization, every other healthcare worker throughout the pandemic, folks were were really stressed and really, you know, really, really busy. Um, I, I think I was um, lucky because we were going, we had the project approved before COVID. Um, and then we pivoted to just phone-based interviews and the participants did get um, a gift card for their time. And so I think the, the folks at the clinic really felt like, oh, that's really nice for participants to just talk on the phone with me and then receive a gift card to perhaps offset some of their hardships. So um, recruitment was was much easier than I would have thought it would be given that it was in a pandemic and I was working with a clinic. Um, so I think, um, you know, the, the CEO who was my partner and thankfully I had, um, um, some of her, her time was of course, very, very busy running a, a, a busy friendly qualified healthcare center. Um, but she kind of deployed some of her, her, um, maybe admin people to help me recruit folks, um, which was very helpful. So I think had I not had the um, been riding on the coattails of my mentor's previous relationship with the clinic, um, I can see not because of me, me and not because of them, but I can see it easily have fallen apart because of the timing of COVID and, and this interview-based study. At the same time, I was interested in food insecurity, like I'm sure many of folks on this call, way before COVID. And then during COVID, then of course, everyone and their mother knows about food insecurity, right? It was all over the news. And so it might've been also that the topic became super salient, you know, just during the time that I was going to start collecting data. Um, so it could have been maybe, maybe both things going on. Yeah. So one thing that you mentioned was that the rate of participants uh, had much at a much higher rate of food insecurity than other studies of the same population. Do you have any indication as to what might have led to the higher rates or in in your participant pool? Yeah, you know, I guess um, I, I don't know the you know the, how how Frac collected their data, but of course it's Frac, so I'm assuming that it's um, you know was well collected and and generalizable and so forth. I will say with the population of the folks that I got to interview, um, you know, they were all older adults, and so that you know I'm sure Frac interviewed and 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 assessed all ages and 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 everyone in in their data set. I'm not sure if they pulled out data for just older adults specific to American and Alaska Natives. That's a pretty finite group of folks. Um, so I think that's one reason. I think older adults in general maybe were experiencing higher rates of food insecurity than, than families with young children who perhaps had other safety net programs available to them. Um, and then the, the the clinic is a federally qualified healthcare center. So presumably folks who have um, you know private insurance or what have you or other insurance, maybe they're using a different healthcare center and I was only interviewing folks that were older adults and were active patients at this particular healthcare center. Um, and yeah, and it might, it might've been also, it was self-reported. And so going back to the feeling of stigma and, and, you know, uncomfortableness of answering those questions, very often they're asked in person in the clinic. And so because this was self-reported, perhaps um, folks were more comfortable just it was also anonymous. I was not able to tie any, so sorry about the siren. I was not able to tie any given participants survey with the interview itself. And, and they knew that ahead of time. So 
perhaps the um, the really anonymous nature of it helped people be very, very, very honest. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I know I've learned a lot listening to your presentation. Um, it really has been great to hear about. Uh, so I want to thank you for answering all of our questions. And at this point, I can hand it back to Paul. Yeah. Uh, thank you once again, Kristen, and thank you, Sarah, for sharing your work with us today. Uh, just a few reminders as we close out today's session. Uh, again, please complete the survey that you will receive when we close uh, the session. Uh, your feedback is greatly appreciated as we look to future webinars. Uh, be on the lookout for an email with today's recording, the handout, and your CEU certificate. Uh, if you enjoyed today's webinar, be sure to check out the upcoming webinars uh, section of the website. The Journal Club continues next Monday. And with that, uh, that concludes today's session. Thank you for joining us, and I hope you have a great day. Thank you for inviting me. Take care, everyone.